0: Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the New Books Network. My name is Joe Tasca, and today I am very happy to be joined by Dr. Gene Twangy, who is the author of the new book, Generations The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence and what they mean for America's future. Gene is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. Gene, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Gene, you have written several books on individual generations over the years. Uh, Gen, me, and the narcissism epidemic focused on millennials, while iGen profiled Gen Z. Your latest book is much more ambitious as it documents the factors that have caused generational changes across all six living generations. So my question is, why did you decide to take on this project? And why is now the time to spotlight generational changes through the years?
1: So when iGen came out, I ended up doing a lot of speaking engagements across the country. And iGen is very focused on the impact of smartphones and social media on Gen Z. But one of the most common questions that I got in the Q&A was, well, hasn't technology had an impact on all of us? And then, of course, you know, I started to think more broadly. Technology isn't just smartphones and social media. There's a lot of technological changes that have had a big impact on our lives that have created generational differences. So it made sense to try to take that broader look at all of the generations, how they have been impacted by many different types of technology. And this seemed like a good time to do it because it's such an interesting cultural moment, um, not just coming out of the pandemic, but the changes since about 2015 or so in the culture and how we discuss so many issues. There's really a sea change after that, cha- after that time, which seems to have ramped up um, a lot of generation gaps that didn't seem quite as stark before then.
0: So this is interesting. Before we delve into the details of specific generations, Let's outline your general thesis. And you just alluded to this. Early on in the book, you point out that many social scientists have traditionally thought that generational differences are primarily caused by major events, often political in nature, things like the Great Depression or World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, September 11th. But as you just said, you're contesting that theory, claiming that these technological advancements are the main drivers of cultural changes that are leading to generational differences. Talk about that focus for us.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the the classic theories about major events, but it's really technology that makes living now so different. From living 200 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, or even 20 years ago, and when you think about even changes in values, are those really due to major events? That seems pretty un- unlikely. That millennials have different values and viewpoints, you know, because of 9/11. You know, are they more open to same-sex marriage because of 9/11? Uh, clearly, that's not true. Yet when you trace things back, technology is often at the root of a lot of these downstream influences. So there's a direct effects of technology and how we live. Then there's also the way the technology makes cultural individualism possible. So more focused on the self and less on others. Technology leads to better medical care and thus longer lives. And thus we have what's called a slow life strategy that development slows down at every stage of the life cycle. So technology has these broad-ranging impacts on time use, on behavior, on attitudes, in the way that major events really don't.
0: So playing off that idea about the individualistic society, allowing people to focus on themselves and this slower life strategy that causes people to delay important life milestones. How does technology cause these significant lifestyle changes? Let's get into some details here.
1: Well, the slow life strategy, I think it's pretty straightforward that a technological society requires more education and it leads to higher life expectancy. So people have more time, they have more years, And it's going to take more years early in development to be able to reach full adulthood. So then what you get is children who are less independent, teens who are less likely to do adult things like have a driver's license or a paid job or drink alcohol as high school students. Young adults get married later, have their kids later. Um, settle into careers later and middle-aged people look and feel younger than their parents or grandparents did at the same age. So 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50 and so on because it is because we have better life care and better uh, better uh, life expectancies and better medical care and better health um, for longer when life expectancy is closer to 80 than 65 or it was not even that long ago. And then for individualism, It's difficult to be individualistic if you have to depend on other people for everything and technology basically means you don't have to depend on people for as much that we have labor saving devices and grocery stores and all of these things that allow people to be independent. And that also frees up more time to be self-reflective and to think more about the self um, and to, recognize that equality and difference are, are core values in a way that you can't really do in a less technologically developed culture where people need to be doing the same things and they need to be doing them together.
0: Gene, let's back up just a little bit here. There are probably some people listening to this conversation who wonder what exactly is a generation? How do academics determine what a generation is and why does it even matter? Some people argue that generational differences don't really exist and that Time period and age differences are the things that impact generations. How would you respond to that?
1: All right. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different issues there. So I'll, I'll try to take them one by one. So, you know, first, I think pretty much everybody agrees on the big stuff. So the big stuff is things like cultures change. It is different to live now than it was 100 years ago. I don't think you can find anybody who would dispute those two statement. Thus, people probably have different attitudes and behaviors, also pretty indisputable. Where there's more disagreement is, okay. that means when you're born has an influence on your life, on your behavior, on your attitudes. But where do we put the birth year cutoffs? Those are admittedly arbitrary. They are put there for the convenience of being able to research different groups and to talk about them in a way that's much more concise than you know always using you know, phrases like people born in the 80s or people born in 1982. How are you really gonna be able to do an analysis of people just born in one year? You have to group people. And I always like to point out that is not unique generations we group people by age all the time using arbitrary cutoffs that are too broad and no one seems to care um teenagers are a great example that's people 13 to 19. 13 year olds are pretty different from 19 year olds but we still put them in the same group and putting them in that group is just an arbitrary offshoot of the language we use generations are similar we have to put the cutoff somewhere yes they're going to be both specific too specific and too broad but that's true of so many different studies of, of group differences. Uh, if we look at regional differences within the US, you know, who's to say that the, that the line is drawn uh, you know, between Maryland and Virginia or something like that to separate two regions? Yet we do that um, just because grouping people, grouping uh, regions, states into regions makes more sense. So then there's the question of age, time period, and generation. Well, each is the product of the other two. So it's extremely difficult to be able to separate out each influence. That's absolutely true. One thing that's really, really useful is that a lot of the big survey data sets that I work with have been done for decades. And that means we can compare each generation when they were a certain age. So we can at least be sure that what we're seeing is not an age difference even though in many cases it's certainly possible that it's not just a generational difference, but also something that's happening to people of all ages. So it's a time period difference. Yet it's pretty clear that there's some differences that are uniquely generational. So the experience people have, uh, Gen Z teens, for example, are having is clearly different from the experience that boomer teens had. And we know that's not time period because boomers aren't teens now. We know that's a generational experience.
0: Interesting. Now, some skeptics would say, "Gene, hey, it's great to hear Gene Twangy talk about the attributes of a particular generation, but I'm not like that, so it's all irrelevant." Um, For example. I mean, I'm one of those early millennials born in 1981. I've always said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty old fashioned guy. I have more in common with someone born in 1970 than someone born in 1990. So, you know, maybe I'm not a real millennial. But you would say, Gene, that even if you're unlike people in your generation, you're still impacted by the cultural changes of your era. Is that right?
1: Definitely. Um And, you know, there's a couple things to address there. So one is you can't write off an average difference because you're the exception or somebody you know is the exception. That doesn't negate the basic fact that there are average differences, right? So um, one of my favorite studies looks at language use on Facebook and it spits out these word clouds, which about, you know, words that men versus women use more often on social media. And the word cloud for women right at the center in bold font is the word shopping. I don't like shopping. I'm a woman. It doesn't mean the results are wrong. It means on average, that's the sex difference. That's just reality. But if I or other women I know don't necessarily like shopping, that doesn't make it wrong or inaccurate. It just means we're the exception. And again, studies of generations are no different from other studies of group differences in that way. There's absolutely going to be exceptions. Um, But with that said, there's also some things where even if you don't fit that average, even if you don't say feel like a millennial in one way or another, you are absolutely still impacted by when you're born. So some of that is going to be major events, which focus on, say how old were you when the Great Recession happened, but it's also going to impact things like attitudes and how you socialize. So I'll use one example which is the average age when people get married. Now someone born in 1931, 50 years before, the social standard for them was to get married pretty young, 20, 22, For someone born in 1981, the standard is more that you get married in your late 20s, say. Well, let's say you're born in 1981 and you want to get married right after college. Well, you might be able to do that, but you have to find someone else who's going to be into that, which is going to be a lot harder because it's not just about you. It's about everybody else your age. And let's, let's say you do that then you're probably going to be the only one in your friend group and your college class who's married. And that's going to have an impact on your social life and how you relate to other people. Um, so we're, we're surrounded by these cultural changes and even if we're the exception, they still can have an impact on us.
0: Jean, I think the best way to proceed with this discussion is to focus on generational trends. You spend hundreds of pages talking about how things like marriage, sexuality, birth rates, politics, education, uh, religion have evolved over the years with the common theme being that technology has spurred these changes along with individualism and the slow life strategy. So in your mind, what generational trends have changed the most over the years? Oh, there's so many,
1: as, as you said, you know, there's, there's so many to choose from. Um, I documented so many of those, of those trends, you know, in, in these, uh, in these big surveys. Um, one that I would pick for sure is, um, attitudes around sexual orientation. So, the shift in the acceptance of same-sex marriage was, you know, by historical standards, incredibly swift. It changed very, very quickly from, you know, the point of the early 1990s when in most surveys it was 15 or 20% who said they were in favor of same-sex marriage to... 2015 when it was legalized across the country and the majority of people were in favor. Now, that's both a time period and a generational effect. It's kind of the classic example of one that that's both meaning some of that is due to the generations turning over. Some of it is due to older people also changing their attitudes. But I mean, that's a complete sea change for someone say in the silent generation versus someone in the millennial generation about whether they could come out if they were lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And it's a really, really big difference.
0: What was interesting about that change, and you mentioned this in your section on Gen Z, there has been this massive increase in bisexualism, right, Gene, especially among women, and in this case, greater acceptance of bisexualism is a huge factor. Correct.
1: Um, trying to determine the, the 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 why behind this change is a lot harder, you know, than, than documenting the change itself. But yeah, I mean, we can we can see that in some of these big um, government sponsored surveys that ask people about their sexual orientation. We see these huge, huge shifts in the number of again, particularly women who are identifying um, as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And most of that is people identifying as bisexual. That's that's gone up. It's um, it's more than doubled. Then why why that happened is is the next the next question. So we have to think about, you know, what happened over that same time. Greater acceptance clearly happened over that same time. Um so that's that's a it's a good candidate for why you see such um a big increase in people identifying as as bisexual. However, if that were the case, wouldn't you also see pretty big increases in people identifying as gay or lesbian? And there have been increases in that. But they don't stand out. They they're didn't impact as many people as the change in people identifying as bisexual.
0: Now, I want to reiterate this, Gene. You make a point to say that no particular generational difference or trend is all good or bad. So it's clear that you're not making any value judgments here. But at the same time, you do express concerns about some evolutionary trends Particularly in regards to increased individualism, at least in the United States, can you explain those concerns?
1: Well, you know individualism is a cultural system that places more emphasis on the self and less on social rules. It has some enormous upsides freedom, equality, you know, being two of the key ones. I think most people, if they at least in the U S today, if they looked at whether they had, a, if they had a choice between living in an individualistic culture versus a collectivistic one, I think pretty much hands down, most people would choose individualism, but it does have some key downsides. So one is more disconnection. Relationships are not as stable. Plus if taken a little too far, individualism goes a long way toward explaining a lot of the things people complain about now about rudeness and
0: incivility in the public space for example you also talk about this emerging lack of community it's something that Robert Putnam identified as far back as the late 90s when he wrote his book bowling alone a lack of community that's resulted often from the loss of religiosity in our society. And you talk about how that is impacting mental health, particularly of millennials and and Gen Z. And is it because of this idea of individualism feeling a, a bit empty as you get older?
1: there's a number of factors um so that's certainly one um millennials are often experiencing this that as you get older just relying on yourself doesn't work out quite as well um because it can result in a lot of disconnection and loneliness for gen z i think it goes beyond that it's also that gen z being the first generation to spend their entire adolescence in the age of the smartphone is finding that communicating with people online isn't enough. It's not enough for mental health, but that's become the social norm for Gen Z in particular. And they spend a lot less time with each other face to face. And that is probably one of the primary reasons we have, a mental health crisis among adolescents and young adults, which did not start with the pandemic. There's a a lot of people talking about the mental health crisis being due to the pandemic. It began around 2012, eight years before the pandemic, where depression began to increase among teens and young adults.
0: And that's something that your colleague Jonathan Haidt has been documenting for years. He wrote Co authored that book with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind, where he focused on uh, that very theory. And what's interesting, Gene, is both Jonathan, Greg, uh, and yourself have come to the conclusion that it's girls, Gen Z girls, that are more impacted by the rise of smartphone usage. Can you talk about why that is?
1: Yeah, that's right. So um our, our our work, you know, really, you know, kind of came together. Um IGen came out in twenty seventeen and then coddling the American Mind came out in twenty eighteen. So it was good timing because um Greg and John were able to draw on a lot of that that data that I'd started to to document about the increase in mental health issues among teens, and that in many cases those increases were more severe among girls and young women. So the suicide rate, for example, in those age groups increased for both males and females, but increased more for females. Um, Early on, the increase in clinical level depression was stronger um, for, for girls. Now it's it's about equal, although the rate is already higher for girls. So that means more, more people have been impacted by that. And then other indicators of, of symptoms of depression unhappiness, loneliness, those increases, um, have been larger, um, for girls than for boys over the period, say, uh, between 2011 and, and recently. Um, but we, you know, we see those increases, um, well before the
0: pandemic. You also identify this rise in pessimism gene amongst Gen Z, uh, possibly because depression might cause distortions that make the world seem worse than it is. Is that a fair assessment?
1: I think that's a good part of it. You know, depression isn't just about emotion, it's about cognition, it's about how you see the world. And with rates of depression now being so high, among this young generation by definition you're going to see more pessimism and a more negative view of the world
0: i want to talk about how generational differences impact the political discourse Uh, but i want to focus on gen z a little bit more here because this was really interesting reading your book you found that Kids and adults, young adults, struggling with depression and life dissatisfaction often identify as being politically liberal. Is that correct? So what we see
1: is if you look at those trends in, say, symptoms of depression among teens, the increases in those depressive symptoms Are larger among liberal teens compared to conservative teens and there's been quite a lot of ink spilled or you know uh, electrons traded online about why that might be the case one thing that I document in the book is it could come down to the original reason around smartphones and social media and in person social interaction because it turns out over that time the two groups flipped. It used to be the liberal teens would go out with their friends more, see their friends more in person, and then that reversed. So it became conservative teens are actually more likely to do that, which is better for mental health. And then liberal teens also spend more time on social media than conservative teens do. So that, that kind of, you know, original explanation for why teen depression went up, may also at least partially explain the difference based on political affiliation as well.
0: And another flip in recent years, Jean, is regarding the issue of free speech, right? Because that used to be a very strong liberal tenet, but now it seems like it depends on the topic, doesn't it?
1: It does depend on the topic um, quite a bit, as many people have observed but the the overall um attitudes around free speech if you look at it in some of the big surveys yeah it used to be it was the liberals who were on the side of saying we need to have an open discussion and let's have f- free speech and it still looks that way for boomers but for millennials and gen z it has flipped and free speech has become something that conservatives talk about and that liberals say is a mistaken framing for some of these debates around language and discussions.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about that, uh, how technological change has helped foster our growing political divide in this country. Shed some more light on that, Gene, for us, uh, and also your thought that Gen Z isn't necessarily likely to become more conservative as they age, as past generations have?
1: Well, we, remains to be seen. Most generations do become you know, more conservative as as they as they get older. But we'll see, you know, if that if that happens with Gen Z. There's one interesting theory that says that a generation's political leaning is influenced by the party and the popularity of the president when they're adolescents and young adults. So that's one reason why Gen X leans Republican because the popularity of Ronald Reagan, that millennials lean Democrat because the popularity of Barack Obama. After that though, it becomes a lot harder to predict because although Gen Z did experience the unpopularity of Donald Trump, a Republican, Joe Biden, a Democrat, has also not been particularly popular. So it's a little going to be a little harder to predict where Gen Z is going to go in the future politically uh, because neither one of
0: those presidents has been particularly popular. Gene, you talk about how so many millennials and uh, Gen Zers are disenchanted because they feel like they got a raw deal. They are not going to have Social Security when they retire. They're not gonna have this safety net because the, the boomers have uh, lived this life of Riley, but that's not really the case, is it?
1: It is not. So I think that narrative ignores a couple of key facts that we have from you know, the most reliable data we've, we've got. So one is that median incomes for young adults are at all time highs. And yes, that's corrected for inflation. That's data from the Census Bureau, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, Homeownership rates are virtually identical between millennials, uh, Gen X, and boomers. At least they were as of 2020. More recently, it's probably stumbled. Um, But up until that point, millennials were actually doing really well compared to boomers at the same age. The narrative that they are all poor or are they going to be first generation not to do as well as their parents? Well, it certainly looked that way in 2014, but more recent statistics up to 2021 doesn't look that way much at all. And it's interesting to me too, as a Gen Xer, that whole narrative about my generation got screwed and we're never going to do well. That's what everybody said about Gen X in the early nineties. And that turned out to not
0: be true. So, It's really interesting to hear that narrative perpetuated because as you point out in your book, and this was really fascinating for me to learn as an early millennial, many baby boomers have struggled in their later life. Many boomers who reach middle age were struggling with unhappiness and depression, the first generation to really struggle with those things. From a mental health standpoint, on a wide scale, deaths of despair were increasing with the boomer generation. And can you talk about that? About how many boomers who were victims of deindustrialization had these unfulfilled expectations for their lives and, and careers and the circumstances that resulted.
1: I mean, this is the other place that the narrative falls apart because the idea is boomers are all financially successful. They climbed the ladder of success and then they pulled it up after them so the millennials couldn't climb it. So we already talked about how it's not true for millennials. Millennials have actually done really well. It's also not true for boomers, particularly boomers who did not get a four-year college education. You look at that group, the world changed kind of basically out from under them in the eighties with um, the decline in manufacturing and the rise of the service economy. It was too late, you know, for many of them to go back and, and re-specialize. Um, and as a result, this is what shows up that you get for that group of boomers without without a college education, much higher rates of depression. Depression has really risen among that group for the silent generation, for example, right before the boomers, there was very little difference in rates of depression between those with and without a college education. Then that really started to diverge with boomers for unhappiness, mental health issues, depression, and also for those deaths of despair. So uh, that's the kind of classic you know, finding um, Angus and uh, Deaton and, and Case found was that Increase in mortality among middle-aged people, particularly whites without a college degree. In more recent years, what I've found, looking at the same data that they did, it's now not even racial. It's You see that for boomers uh, across the board, that where mortality had been steadily declining for a long time, it started to tick up in the last 10 years. And almost all of those excess deaths are things like liver disease and suicide. Um, They're deaths of despair. They're they're things that really indicate um, these very concerning underlying issues that also absolutely suggest that the idea that all boomers have done well is
0: false. So it's interesting Boomer parents and Gen X parents really pushed this idea of self-esteem, this idea that it's important for their children to feel good about themselves, to feel special, to feel a sense of confidence, and in some cases, entitlement. You talk about this at length in your book that you co-authored with Keith Campbell, The Narcissism Epidemic. Where did this generational change come from, this push for self-esteem in uh, the millennial generation.
1: Well, and it started with Gen X. Um, A lot of Gen Xers have memories of these, uh, of self-esteem boosting, you know, starting, you know, when they were in school in in the 70s and 80s. And then it really became next level with uh, when it was the millennial kids in, in the 90s. So it seems to have its root in rising individualism and in particular, a lot of the movements that boomers popularized during the 70s—you know, there was a lot of emphasis on mysticism and spirituality and self-focus at that time. And then the idea, I think, became for a lot of boomers, of well, if I'm going to explore the self and find out all these cool things, I got to make my make sure that my kids do this too. So it started to seep into education and because of rising individualism it was taken for granted that if kids just felt good about themselves that everything else good would fall into place turns out that's not true once it was tested but it seemed true and people barreled ahead with this idea that we should boost self-esteem without actually figuring out if that would be effective or wise
0: so we talked quite a bit about the impact of individualism on generational change, I want to also discuss the downsides of the slow life strategy that you document in your book. It's something that's really developed in in recent decades. Uh, More millennials, for example, as you point out, go to college because modern day jobs in the knowledge economy require a college education, which subsequently delays the start of adulthood and marriage on a wide scale. So talk more about the slow life strategy and that the impact of that on generational differences.
1: And the the slow life strategy is is such a useful theory for understanding some of these generational changes. And, you know, my hope in the whole book is just for people to understand each other better. And I think this is a prime example. Because I think there's a lot of grandparents who are looking at their millennial grandchildren saying, You're twenty eight, you're not married yet. You know, what is wrong with you? Well (laughs) <laughs> that 's the way things are now, but you know but why are they this this way now well it 's part of that bigger picture that development has slowed down for everybody it 's for a good reason it 's for a wonderful reason it 's because life expectancy is higher than it used to be, um, and because more people are going to college also you know a a, a great reason now there 's trade offs involved. <laughs> not everything is is completely rosy um there are certainly downsides to waiting you know longer to to marry it means that you know your, your 20s are like an episode of sex in the city and maybe not always all that much fun all the time with dating and so on um there's biological limits to fertility that's a downside to to uh, having kids later um but you know, all these changes happen for these these bigger reasons. It's not that millennials woke up one day and said, I'm going to drive my grandparents nuts. It's just, it's just not how it works.
0: We talked earlier about this idea of millennials feeling like they got a raw deal. I, I think about social media and social comparison, but also college debt. So those are factors that probably play into that feeling of disenchantment amongst millennials, wouldn't you say?
1: I, I think so. And I think there, there's certainly some truth to that. So, but not, not 100%. So here's where I think there's definitely truth to it. If, yeah, you look at being successful in a career, that is usually going to be the first step is to get that college degree but then you have to pay for it. And then you're carrying that debt around. But you will make more money, at least on average. That's one of the reasons why median incomes are so much higher now. It's one of the primary reasons really why median incomes are so much higher now for young adults is because more of a college education and so they get better jobs. Where one thing I think has to be acknowledged though is that, that it, it, it does equalize out to an extent. And the Federal Reserve of St. Louis looked recently at wealth building among millennials, which does take into account liabilities like college loans. And they find that millennials are neck and neck with Gen X at the same age and are on track to catch up with boomers in wealth building. And that, you know, that wasn't true five or six years ago when we still were having, or more like seven or eight years ago, we're still recovering from the Great Recession. But now that those benefits of more millennials going to college
0: are starting to appear. Gene, let's talk a little bit more about this idea of the slow life trajectory impacting particularly millennials and Gen Z. Let's talk about child rearing. So millennials started having fewer children and they're waiting longer to have them, waiting for stable jobs. How does individualism as a mindset play into the acceptance of childlessness.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, You know, when you're thinking of yourself as an individual, when you're not thinking in terms of duty or what you're supposed to do or so on, that's individualism that pushes for having children later. And in some cases it pushes for not having children at all, that you should do what you want to do. And it shouldn't be something that is expected as a duty. Plus, there's the idea that, you know, when you have kids, you're going to have to make some personal sacrifices. And in an in- age of individualism, not as many people are willing to do that.
0: So, Gene, millennials are also becoming less religious. And Gen Z is taking this to another level. And, As you point out in your book, a lot of younger adults and children, they disagree with these religious rules and and teachings, this idea that everybody has to believe what's in these holy books. There's a consequence to that reduction in religiosity, isn't there?
1: Yeah. So, and we do see this, you know, there's been the theory for a long time. Oh, it's just public Religious practice that's declined. You know, private practice, private religious practice is still the same. It's not. Oh, millennials will come back to religion once they're older and have kids. They didn't. Um, oh, they're spiritual but not religious. Not from what we can tell in surveys, spirituality is about the same. Well, uh, religiosity has gone down, and there's, you know, like everything, trade-offs. Um, a lot of mil- millennials would say, "I'd be happy to be religious if." The organization was more open to LGBT individuals. It's a very, very common um, sentiment. Um, And so there's the downside, though, of that loss of community, that loss of meaning in life, where I think you have a lot of people who are searching for meaning. They're searching for community, and they're trying to find it in places Other than religion. And it's sometimes tough to do that.
0: Gene, there's some interesting data on political trends in recent years. And what stood out to me in your book is this idea that as younger people, millennials and Gen Z, are seeking more education. Because of its requirement in the knowledge economy, there's this widening political gap that seems to be emerging between more educated millennials and Gen Zers compared to baby boomers and millennials that don't have a college education. And that's really becoming more pronounced in recent years, isn't it?
1: it is. Yeah, so in the last chapter called the future, you know, I look at the future of politics. And it you know, there's there's a couple of um, of striking trends. And one is based on education. That it used to be there was a fair amount of diversity within each party in terms of level of education. Democrats had working class people as well as people with a college education. Republicans were often known for, you know, business people who had a fair amount of education as well as, you know, their working class constituent as well. And that's changed. That's changed, you know, quite a bit. Um, Just as one example, so we're talking about the future, say looking at 18 year olds is a good way to kind of look into the future. And one of the big surveys of um, 18 year olds across the country and the percentage who identify as conservative stayed about the same in those who plan to go to a four-year college and has gone way up among those who do not plan to go to college. And we see this in adult samples as well, that the Republican Party um, now has a larger proportion of people who did not go to college and there's been an increase in the number of democrats who did go to college that education has become a proxy for political party in a way that it did not used to be
0: can you talk about the difference between progressive baby boomers and progressive gen zers and millennials
1: yeah so it's interesting because there's uh, a lot of things that are associated with being progressive, you know, by boomers, by Gen Xers, which for Gen Z crosses the political spectrum. So, support for same sex marriage is one example of that. Um, legalizing marijuana even starts to approach that. If you're looking at young adults, Republicans, 60% in a poll said, they wanna legalize marijuana. Um, even other things that are traditionally associated with progressives, a lot of young adult Republicans support. So debt-free, debt-free college, um, investing in technology to help the environment are two big examples of that. So, you know, what it means to be a progressive versus a conservative has also changed somewhat that those wedge issues are, are different. Um, so for young adults, the wedge issues are more likely to be things like gun control uh,
0: and government health insurance. Gene, as you know, there has been an increase in conspiratorial thinking in recent years, this lack of trust in the government, in the system, so to speak. And this cynicism seems to have begun with Gen X, correct?
1: It did, yeah. So, you know, we can see in these surveys, there's questions about trust in others. You know, do you think most people can be trusted? Do you think most people are helpful? And then there's also questions about confidence in institutions. So in government, in the medical establishment, in media, uh, in science, in corporations, and where we start to see those declines in trust and in confidence in institutions, the turning point really is, is with Gen X and then boomers and Gen Z take that to the next level. Uh, So that, that cynicism about other people and that distrust of the press, of government, you know, began with Gen X in the 80s and 90s and has continued from there. And I think in recent years, that's been expressed by a lot of fascination with conspiracy theories, which, you know, can be defined various ways, but one way they're sometimes defined is unlikely beliefs or theories that suppose powerful institutions or groups are behind the scenes, controlling things usually in a negative way.
0: Gene, we talked earlier about the concept of self-esteem and how it began with Gen X, millennials, But what's interesting is you point out in your book that after the great recession in 2007, 2008, this level of teen and young adult narcissism really started to fall. And now we see incredible levels of despair and just general disenchantment amongst Gen Z. So we've gone the other way from uh, what the, the trends that you were seeing when you wrote Generation Me and the Narcissism Epidemic, haven't we? Yeah,
1: that's right. And um, I think it's often misperceived these days. I still get people say, oh, yeah, you know, you find that young adults are, are uh, more narcissistic. Well, not, not anymore. And that was that, that turning point, 2008. Now, given that that lines up with economic trends, you'd think maybe then self-esteem and narcissism would start to come back after the U.S. economy improved after 2012 but it doesn't, it kept going down. And I think that's a symptom of, of some of these other trends we've been discussing where depression starts going up around then, unhappiness goes up, um, all these things that at least among young people are, are counter, you know, to that, that um, feeling of, of narcissism and, and, and high self-esteem. So that's a huge, huge shift. You, know, you go from millennials, very optimistic, Uh, happier than Gen X was at the same age when they were young, very high expectations to Gen Z were just, it changes almost overnight. And they're less self-confident, more likely to be depressed, lots of despair and lots of pessimism.
0: Gene, what are the implications of this continuous decline in the birth rate that we're seeing with particularly millennials and so many Gen Zers are expressing reservations or at least a reluctancy to not have children, what could be the ramifications if that trend continues into the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that that's the thing, you know, um, trying to figure out if the birth rate's going to continue to go down. Well, the repeal of Roe versus Wade, you know, throws a little bit of uncertainty into that. But... We can see this in the surveys of 18-year-olds in the transition between millennials and Gen Z, there's been a drop. in the percentage who say that it's likely they're going to have children, even under ideal conditions, they'd like to have at least one kid, that's, that's gone down. And that's fascinating because that, that, those survey results have been very high and very stable since the 70s. And so millennials who said they wanted to have kids still didn't have them. And Gen Z isn't even saying they want them at 18. So I think that that does suggest that birth, that birth rate is not is not going to come back up. So that has huge, you know, demographic implications. You can look at a society like Japan, for example, where there's so many older people and not enough young people. We very well might end up in that same situation in the U.S. That you know, do we have enough young workers to support Social Security? Even more practically, do we have enough? Young people to take care of the number of older and elderly people we're going to have. What is going to happen when there's fewer children? I mean, more schools are going to shut down. Other, uh, you know, services related to children are not going to have as many customers. You know, how is that going to change the landscape? There's so many downstream
0: implications. Gene, it seems like the main message of your book is that we have to find a way to create an environment where technology can help bring us together as a society instead of tearing us apart the question is and this is an easy question right how do we do that what approaches can we take to harness the power of technology and use it to our advantage
1: are you joking that that's an easy question?
0: <laughs> very much so.
1: Yes. Um, right. That, that's our challenge. Although it, it is interesting because, yes, this is a big challenge. It's not an easy thing. However, there's some very low-hanging fruit in this area in terms of, say, more regulation around social media that I think would make an enormous difference. So one example is to raise the minimum age for social media to 16 and to actually verify age. That could do a tremendous amount of good in terms of mental health because those increases in depression, those links between depression and social media use are the strongest for the youngest teens. You know, where we see the biggest increase in self-harm behaviors, 10 to 14-year-olds. So if we can keep that group away from social media until they're more able to handle it, we could see some really big benefits in terms of mental health. And kind of as a big picture thing, I've thought about this a lot of technology has brought us the most precious gift of all, more time, that we have more years of life, And that labor-saving devices have given us more leisure time. So what are we going to do with that gift of time? What's happened a lot is what we do with it is watch TikTok videos or read news online. Maybe that's not what we should be doing with that extra time. Maybe we should instead be spending that time with each other.
0: That's a wonderful sentiment. Uh, You also talk about this need to emphasize the positive aspects of race relations. And playing off your comments about technology, we're so overexposed to all these videos of um, negative police interactions with people of color. And it seems like we're back in 1963 sometimes uh, when you look at social media, but that's not really the case, right? Thankfully it's not.
1: And yes, these terrible things still happen, but think about what it really was like then. Um, Segregated schools in much of the South still as just one example. And I'm not gonna make the case that we have completely integrated schools now, but at least it's not legislated
0: Now, what's interesting about the reduction in religiosity, and I don't think that's ever going to come back. I don't think that we're going to see the pews full at local churches and synagogues anytime soon. But you talk about the reduction in meaning, purpose that can come from a lack of religion. And could that also lead to an increase and are we not seeing it right now in political tribalism as a way to fill that void of meaning
1: that's what some people have have argued um yeah because i want to be clear this is you know not not my original idea uh there's 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 many writers who have have made that argument um and i think it it fits the data to a good extent that politics has in many ways become the new religion. Because it used to be that it was taken for granted, more or less, that you could have a civil conversation with someone who might be of a different political persuasion, that if your son or daughter married someone who is a member of the other political party, well, you know, maybe you'd have some interesting discussions, but it wasn't a big deal. It's now the modern equivalent of, oh, you know, what used to be considered such a big deal of, say, a Jew marrying a Christian. Now, no one seems to care about that. But if a Democrat marries a Republican, that seems to be what people get more up in arms about.
0: Gene, if somebody reads your book and gets through it, I think that it's safe to say that that person will have a better understanding of not just their own generation, but the other five living generations surrounding them. However, is it safe to say that it's just natural for us to misunderstand other generations, the generations that came before us? Is that just human nature when it comes right down to it?
1: Well, I mean, it is certainly human nature, that you can 't completely understand someone else someone else 's lived experience that 's true for any sort of group difference, but that doesn 't mean we shouldn 't try and with generations that 's the opportunity that we have is to try to understand the perspective of someone who grew up in a different time than we did and that really was my goal for this book, um, particularly because generations have been subject to so many myths and stereotypes and you know, anecdote. Um, I, I really wanted to take as much data as possible and bring it to bear on that question. What are the differences? How can we really understand people both younger and older than ourselves and what experiences they have had?
0: Jean Twangy is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. Her new book is called Generations, the real differences between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and what they mean for America's future. Gene Twangy, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this. Thanks for having me on.